listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. That's how I do it. Um, and, and, and if you're actually listening to this in podcast form, um, the reason it seems a little different is because I am actually sitting in a tent at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. Um, yeah, thank you. And there's a live audience here. And, and, and those of you that are faithful Humanize Me listeners for the last five years know that there's never been a live audience in the history of this show. And so we are, we are breaking new ground. This is very exciting stuff. And so the, the, the weird thing, humanizers, is that the people that are sitting in front of me, none of them have ever heard the show. Um, and, and many of them don't even know who I am. Um, and so I, I know it's, it's despicable. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a travesty. Um, so we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit. That's not different. Um, and then we're going to have a microphone and people are going to ask questions. And if you're like, but who are these people? I'm going to try to describe them and I'm going to judge how good a job I'm doing by the nods. Okay. <laughs> But basically, the Wild Goose Festival, I think, could fairly be described as a very progressive Christian music festival. Now, that doesn't mean everybody here is a very progressive Christian, or even a Christian at all, necessarily. But that's the, the roots of it. And the people that started it, they were Sojourners Magazines types. They were the kind of Christians I was at the end of the journey. They, these were the people I was hanging around with right before... The wheels came off, and um, and so they're they're lovely people, and um, and they're very very connected to social justice issues. Very very. This is a very LGBTQ friendly environment. All of those things are true. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else distinctive? I'm looking at the audience. Any of some leaving out? No. Uh, we're good looking people. Yeah, there are some deluded people here as well. Um, <laughs> Who are saying how good-looking they are in, in, in a way that is so obviously fishing. Um, so, so probably, I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see if this is a good podcast because anyone that knows me from back in the day, and this is funny. I, w- I was talking to my son um, on, the, on, on the phone as I was driving down here, and he said, you're going to a speaking engagement? He said, there's a blast from the past. Because in my earlier life, when I was in the Christian world, like that was how I made a living. I was a platform speaker. Like that's what I did. And I used to speak 100, 150, 200 times a year sometimes. And in the decades since I left the church, nobody invites me to speak. I mean, in the beginning, some of the the, the, the atheist organizations had me speak as a novelty, but then they didn't like me very much. And so um, I don't get invited to those things either anymore. So I just don't, I never give a talk anymore, um, which is fine on many levels. But I loved, I loved talking to audiences. I mean, you guys, when we were in Minnesota, right? I liked being in front. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. I, I was funny, wasn't I? I was engaging. Com- profound, compelling. Yes, thank you for coming. Um, and and so when the thing that happens now is whenever there's more than five people listening to me, I'm so excited. 
And so I'm, I'm just genuinely like excited right now. So instead of doing good podcasts, I'm going to shamelessly play to the people that are here because they're real and they're here. And this is really exciting for me. So thanks for coming. Um, so they've never listened to the podcast. I, I, I gave them a little, a little background on the podcast. But the thing to understand is that when people when people leave the faith altogether i mean that's the funny thing about being here at wild goose you might go like well if it's a christian festival why do they have you here and the answer is that the organizers said there's a certain percentage of people at the wild goose that are hanging on by a very thin thread they started out as kind of good evangelicals and then the gay thing happened and they were like can't go there and then they, they, they moved and then they moved over here and then you know, suddenly they're like, well, I'm picking these verses in the Bible that I think are still true. And these ones I think need to be interpreted away. And they're like, they're on that slippery slope. And five years from now, some of the people that are here are going to be where you are. And to be honest, a lot of them are probably really terrified of that because being part of the church, being part of the Christian community has, is all they've ever known. And, um, and it's an identity. It's a community. It's a sense of purpose. It's a meaning-making engine. And, uh, and then they said, you know, and then, then there are some people that are going to be at the festival that are completely firm. Their feet are planted firmly on the ground, but their brother just left or their son or their daughter or their wife. And they're trying to figure that out. And so we wanted to have you there so that they could see, like, in flesh and blood that like you can leave the faith and still be okay which is kind of cool because that means they think I'm okay um, but that that's ended up I mean if I if I think about what my ministry has been for the past 10 years I think that's a big chunk of it it's just trying to communicate to people who are experiencing the most profound loss of their life that there's hope that there's life, that there's ministry, that there's meaning, that there's fellowship, that there's all these things that they thought like, now that I'm out of, out of Christianity, all those things are cut off from me, that all those things can be there again. It's just harder. It's harder to make it happen. It's harder to find or it's harder to create. It's harder to pay for. Um, it's, 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 it, 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 it's, it's, it's a, I often say that being a, a secular humanist now is sort of like being part of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in 1950. It's part of being part of the civil rights movement in the United States in 1945. Like, your movement was coming. It was there. It was small. It was going to do better in the future. But right now, it's pretty lonely. And I think that there's a whole group of people that are really excited about a day when there are congregations for people who want to come together and pursue loving kindness and pursue goodness as a way of life and try to answer life's ultimate questions collectively um, without any supernaturalism. And they're not, it's not that they're like angry or hateful towards supernaturalism. They just can't buy it. And, and so when they go to your churches, as beautiful and loving and kind as your folks might be, the narrative doesn't 
connect with them. And so they feel on the outside. And so there's a whole bunch of people out there that are kind of trying to be there, trying to get there. But it's, it's tough for a lot of them. They're in some little town in the middle of nowhere and they're the only person like them that they know. And half the time they're closeted because they don't even feel like it's safe to say what they are or what they think or how they, or what they hope for. Um, and so, so that's the kind of people, for the last 10 years, that's the kind of people I've been, I've been working with. Because when I left um, and I went, 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 and it's funny, you know, you said when he made that choice. And it's funny because, of course, anybody that ever has lost their faith will tell you there's no choice involved. You know, no, nobody decides what they believe. You know, I mean, we can be convinced or we can be influenced in different ways by a preacher here or a scientist there or a parent over here or an older brother or some kid at school. But nobody just decides what they're going to believe. And so when somebody loses their faith like I did, somebody who's sincerely and deeply connected and committed to the Christian thing, it's not a choice. You know, my faith, my faith sort of died the death of a thousand cuts living and working in inner cities with really poor people. And uh, when it finally, when I finally woke up and realized like, yeah, there's nothing left, that was a hard day. That's a hard day. I mean, I was a professional Christian, so first of all, I was out of a job, if I was honest. But the other thing is, like, my whole identity was, was that. that those, those were my people. It's what I did on Sundays and Wednesday nights. Um, that was my, the narrative. That was, the, that was my moral code. Like, that was how I answered questions. Um, it, was, it, was, it was the whole ball of wax for me, as it is for many of you. And so when you realize that you can't hold that narrative anymore, that you, that if you're honest, you don't believe it, it's, you know, nobody would choose that. I mean, shoot, if I could have taken a little pill and gotten back into the matrix, oh, I'd have taken it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's made my, my relationships with my parents much more complicated. It's made my relationships with lots of my friends much more complicated. I was doing well in Christianity. I was, I was a big deal. You know? And so... Yeah, no, Christianity was a great gig for me. And, and by, by the end of my Christian journey, you go like, yeah, but you, you know, all the, all the gay hating and all the misogyny and stuff like that. Like, oh, I, I, like, I was with the nice Christians. <laughs> I, like, I had left that behind a long time ago. And so, is it me or is, does this thing seem to just keep drooping? Because, um, I, I mean, at my age, <laughs> it's just a, just a scary concept. Um, Something I'm familiar with. Um, all right. So, so when I first left, the thing you got to remember is like my 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 understanding changed, but my values didn't. And so the first thing that happened to me when I left the faithless, I, was, I, I began looking like where are where, where's that community of loving social justice minded you know deeply committed you know song singing hand holding folks that want to pursue loving kindness in a purely secular way and I couldn't find them I mean I would go to like the atheist united chapter or the you know 
And I, what I found was a bunch of old guys with Richard Dawkins books under their arms and black t-shirts making fun of Christianity. And I didn't want to make fun of Christianity. You know, some of my best friends are Christians. Really. And I had been one for the last 25 years. So like, I, like, I, like, I, I understood that you, you can, those are sincerely held beliefs and, I, and, and, and that it makes sense from within and, and it made sense for me. And so, you know, so that wasn't my world. But like, I couldn't find the other. And the only difference between me and most of the people that listen to my podcast is that because I had been a Christian leader myself, a community builder, because I was a charismatic public speaker and, uh, and really well connected and had a really supportive family behind me and had an Ivy League education and had enough money, I knew that I could create a community like that for myself. You know what I mean? Like I knew I had built communities many times in my life. And as I went along in the Christian journey, I less and less thought that my communities succeeded because of the Holy Spirit. And I more and more thought they succeeded because there are certain community building principles and there are certain best practices and there are certain relationship building skills. Like if you want to get a group of people to care about each other, it's not magic. Like you can study that stuff. Like marching bands do it. Football teams do it. Armies do it, right? CrossFit does it. Yeah, lots, lots of people do it. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous does it. And so, like, I knew how it was done. And I thought, like, okay, if I can't find the community I'm looking for, I'll just start it. But most people don't come with that kind of background and that kind of confidence and those kind of resources. And so it's really scary when they lose out on the community that they're a part of because they can't find a ready-made one to fit into, a place to belong, if you will. This podcast, for many of the people in its audience, is as close as they come to a place to belong. Um, and, and there's a Facebook group that I don't participate in because I don't do any social media and I don't know how. But, um, but they, they're connected to each other and there's a conversation that's always going on amongst the people um, that, are, that are in our audience because they're, some of them are so, are, so, are so incredibly lonesome in their worlds. And they're trying to figure it out. So there. So right, right before we turn on the microphones, I told you about the podcast. And then we turn on the microphones. I told you about it all over again. Um, and I guess the question is like, okay, friends at Wild Goose, you just met somebody whose whole ministry is trying to build community for people on the other side of faith. You got any questions? Anything you want to know? Because otherwise this will be like the shortest episode of Humanize Me that we ever had. <laughs> Lady in the back, the, 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 the nice man is going to come to you with a microphone. I can't come too far. Or you can come to him. For those of you in podcast land, a lovely woman is making her way to the front of the room. Uh, well, I just wondered if you've read the latest Brian McLaren about the four stages of, of faith development. And would you comment on that? Um, I haven't read the book, but I have talked to Brian McLaren about it. So I like that's and Brian McLaren, it's funny. If you're here at the Wild Goose and you say like, Brian McLaren, everyone's like, he's my best friend. Um, he's everybody at this place. Everybody at this place is he's their best friend. Um, and he's ubiquitous. Like he's here, he's there, he's every effing where. Um, Roy Kent uh, and Brian McLaren. But but for those of you that don't know who he is in the podcast audience, Brian McLaren was the was one of the early writers and leaders of a, of, of a Christian movement called the Emergent Church, 
which was all the people that were trying to get rid of all the nasty bits of Christianity and hold on to the good stuff um, and, and hold on to the narrative and hold on to the, hold on to the we still believe in God stuff. Um, I one time in a conversation with Brian said um, that I really wish that he would come over to my side. Not because I think there's anything wrong with being a Christian, but because in the Christian world, there are so many pastors and so many caregivers and so many counselors. And in the secular world, there are so few people that have the warmth and the inspirational capacity that he has. And I was like, we could really use you in this, in this building, community building. And he said, oh, but he said, I, I got to stay loyal to my people. And I said, you know, when I see you progressive Christians at Wild Goose trying to remake Christianity into a gay-friendly, inclusive, warm and wonderful, nobody's going to hell, universalist narrative. I always think like, you guys are brilliant and you're smart and you're loving and you're committed. I have no doubt that you can do it, but you remind me of a bunch of engineers trying to take a submarine and retrofit it to fly. I said, I have no doubt that with the, the proper engineering skills, you can take a submarine and make it fly. But wouldn't it be easier to start from scratch and just build an airplane? And sometimes I think like the Christian narrative, it's a kind of a bloodthirsty narrative. You know, a God who loves you so much that he wants to live with you forever. And he loves you so much that he will burn you forever in hell if you don't accept it. Um, you know, the idea of a God who can only forgive if he kills somebody. Um, you know, and, and I, I know there are ways of interpreting around all of that stuff because I did it in the latter part of my Christian journey. I found a way around all those problematic verses and all those problematic concepts. But I was always aware that I was doing sort of intellectual and spiritual gymnastics, if you know what I mean. You know, trying to make, trying to reinterpret a verse so that it works in a certain way. I, I watched my mom do it around the LGBTQ issue. Because she, she really wanted the Bible to be a gay-friendly book. And you can, be a, you, can be a gay, you can be a gay-friendly Bible carrier, but like you've got to work around the book. And, it, and like if you don't think you have to work around the book, like then you're playing a different kind of delusional game than I think. It's not there. It's not there. It wasn't in part of that culture. And so when I, saw, when I see Brian talking about kind of the stages of faith and everything sometimes I think like why why hold on to all that stuff like if you really just want to come up with a this world religion a religion that teaches on the basis of manifest the manifest qualities of nature that we should love each other and try to preserve life for its own sake if you want to do that like, let's just start from scratch and do that because the, the, the epic of evolution, the, the story that all people all over the world sort of share about where we come from and how things work, the way things are, that's a really good narrative to promote the idea of love as the best way of life. Love is the most excellent way, to quote, to quote somebody. You know, the, and... and, and and ultimately, I think what Brian would say is, I have a lot invested in my faith. I have a lot invested in this community. There's a tremendous amount of people in this community who will never, like, like somebody like Brian 
if he lost all of his faith, like I did, he'd be fine. He'd be fine. He knows enough science. He, he's seen enough of the world. He's had enough experiences of human community building that he could, like I have, come up with a secular humanism that would be compelling and inspiring and, and beautiful and that would draw people. He's fine, but he's very well aware of the fact that there are a whole lot of people in a whole lot of churches that if they lost their faith in that narrative, they wouldn't be fine. And so what he's committed to doing, it seems to me, is trying to shape the narrative and shape the church in such a way that those people who are going to stay in there can love gay people and can feel good about their lives and can feel good about their kids that don't believe and can have this kind of expansive faith that he's got. And I think that's a, a really wonderful project. Rob Bell is on the same project. You know, uh, uh, Pete Rollins on the same project. Like all my friends are on the same project and I hate them all. <laughs> Because they're having so much fun, they're all together, and they can still make a living. Um, and it's, it's, it's when you leave it all together that, uh, that, that there's, there's not a whole lot out there. The, the problem is, to be honest with you, is the progressive Christian movement is really a great movement for all the people that grew up in church. But your kids, your grandkids, you know, if you've been studying statistics, I mean, I work on college campuses. Most of them don't believe. They never buy in. And the question is, who's going to create a community for them? Who's going to create songs for them? Who's going to preach sermons to them? And the difficulty is, is that if all of our best leaders are spending all of their best energy trying to make this narrative work for the people that are left in it, you know, to quote, to quote your Jesus, the fields are ripe for harvest out there. There are a whole lot of secular young people who are not yet committed to love as a way of life. And they are easy to reach. And they are easy to evangelize. They are easy to win over. But I got to tell you something, there are not many people out there trying to do it. Because all the lovers have decided to stay in church. So, that's a lousy answer to your question. But like it was a great takeoff point for me to wax eloquent. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Go, go back there. Come on, come on. Who helped you as you were transitioning out of the faith, and how can those of us who choose to remain in the faith help folks who are transitioning? What a out? beautiful question that is. Yeah, who helped me? It's funny. I think the I think the guy who helped me most still listens to this podcast. And so um, I will call him out by name. Um, and that's my friend Richard Staczynski. At the time when I left, when I, I had a bike crash that was kind of the final, the final straw for me. I, what happened was I, 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 I was riding my bike. I, I don't remember the crash. I, I just remember waking up in the morning, getting on my bike, and I remember waking up in the hospital. And evidently I went off the road at about 40 miles an hour and went into a tree. Um, wear a bike helmet because mine saved my life. Um, shattered the helmet, but saved me. But for about a month, I couldn't think straight. And when I recovered from, from, the, from the accident, um, I remember sitting with my wife and saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that my personality is in my brain. Because if you smash my brain against a tree at 40 miles an hour, I change. And I said, you know what? And I'm pretty sure that like I'm going to die 
because I just almost did. And I think that when I die and this brain breaks down, I don't think I'll exist anymore. I think this is it. I think this is all we get. And my wife looked at me and she said, yeah, I've been thinking that for a long time. She said, I think you better stop being a professional Christian because there's nothing left. And so that was, when that was happening, I was working in it for a little nonprofit. And I got to know Rich Dzinski. He was working for a little nonprofit next to mine. And we, I ended up going to work for him and, uh, in, on the Israel-Palestine conflict. We were actually educating church people about how to be nice to Palestinians. Um, and uh, Rich had never believed in any of this stuff. And when I left the faith, he gave me a little book called The Great Agnostic, which was a biography of Robert G. Ingersoll, who none of you have ever heard of, and who was the most famous speaker in the world, in, in, in world history in 1890. In 1890, Robert Ingersoll had spoken to more people live than any human being in human history. Um, and he was known as the Great Agnostic. And he was a popularizer of Darwin who ran around giving winsome speeches, challenging people to think differently. And even church people loved to listen to him because he wasn't just, he wasn't just a, a, a secularist. He was a feminist, an animal rights activist, an environmentalist, an abolitionist. He was a beautiful human being with a beautiful family who loved him to death. And uh, Ingersoll could preach secular goodness. And Rich said, I think, you, I think you should read this book. And I read it. And for the first time in my life, I saw what I was looking for and I wasn't finding which was somebody who could take the, just the narrative of nature that says we're born and we die and that's it and could, and could tell that story of how human beings came to care for each other and where our love comes from and how it all works in such a way that it inspired people to want to become their best selves. And I was like, that's what I want to be. I want to be, be an evangelist of love like Robert Ingersoll. The next book Rich gave me was a book called Good Without God. And it was written by the humanist chaplain at Harvard University, a guy named Greg Epstein, who was much in the news recently because uh, he's, the, he's now the president of all the cha chaplains at Harvard, but he's, he's, he's the humanist chaplain. First time they've ever had that. And Greg's book was called Good Without God. And that was what I was looking for. So I flew out to Boston to see what he was talking about. And I walked into this youth group that he was running, this, this campus group. And it was like any youth group I'd ever been in. All the Young Life chapters I'd been to, every church youth group. It was like a bunch of nice kids hugging each other and swapping books and talking about a missions trip they had gone on the week before. And they sat, you know, and they were just like youth group kids. The only difference was is that they were pursuing goodness in a completely secular way. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And Rich sort of set me up. Rich set me up with, with um, Greg. And Greg ended up helping me get the job to be the humanist chaplain at USC, which was the place where I learned how to build a secular community um, in, 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 a, in, a human, in a humane way. So, so it was really rich who turned me on to both the big narrative and they also turned me on to the, this is how you do it in real life. Um, so yeah, if you're out there, Rich Dzinski, like <laughs> this is all your fault. Um, <laughs> Yeah. As, as, as believers, I think that the most important thing that you, if you're at Wild Goose, almost certainly you've done the most important thing that you can do. 
And that is that you've traded in heaven and hell for a God who's going to save everybody in the end. Um, and the reason that that's important, or at least you're open to the possibility, right? At least you're like, look, there are verses in there that suggest that, yeah, everybody gets saved. And there are other verses that suggest that, you know, a significant number of people burn forever. Um, and uh, well, I'm just going to underline these verses and ignore these verses, you know, because that's what we do. We underline some and we ignore the others. If you're not at least open to the possibility that God saves everybody, it's very hard to have a close relationship with somebody or to have somebody that close to you that openly doesn't believe and that, and that you know deep down, like they're not even trying to believe. And in fact, like they did believe and they're not coming back. Because I mean, there's nobody that's farther gone from believing in God than me. Not because I'm angry or mad, but just because like I tried as hard as I could to stay in there. Like there's nothing left. I, I, every trick has been exhausted, okay? So for me, when, when somebody thinks that I'm doomed to hell, if I don't agree with them, that's just not a place where like there's no, I'm a dead man walking to them. And it's very hard for them to, in, like, 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 for instance, if your kid or my kid found a fellowship like the one I had at USC, all these nice kids reading books about, you know, science, reading books about like sort of like listening skills, scientific approach to like how you can understand people better, communication stuff. And they're like, how do we apply that to our relationships? Oh, I can use this on my mom and, and, and we'll have a better conversation. Or like, you know, they, they read something about the way in which social media affects our relationships. And they go like, well, I'm really committed to loving relationships. So like, I'm going to have to change my social media habits. And, and they're using science to pursue, to pursue loving kindness. If you believe in hellfire and damnation, you want that kid, you want that group to fall apart. Or you want that kid to have a bad experience in that group. Because if he's happy, if, if she's growing if she's finding her friendships there, if she's feeling like there's meaning and purpose to her life, she's not going to be hungry for Christianity. She's not going to be susceptible to your gospel anymore. And so the question is, do you want people to have the fruit of the Spirit or do you want them to buy into your name brand? Right? And so the most important thing that you can do is identify for, for, for that person, sort of go like, okay, You've told me what you don't believe, but tell me what you're committed to. Tell me, tell me what values are the most important. And I think you're going to probably find that there are a bunch of values. You go, like, I recognize those values. I resemble that remark. You know, like that, you're, you'll connect. And then at that point, you sort of go like, now tell me about how this practice or about how that idea or about how this discipline or how these relationships are helping you to grow into those values because I want that to happen in your life. It's, it's, it's a little bit like, what if you were into weightlifting and you met somebody with, with rheumatoid arthritis, like my wife, and weightlifting is off the table for her, but she's found like yoga. And you go like, oh, listen, I, I don't want you to be a weightlifter. I want you to be healthy. And so if yoga's working for you, tell me about the yoga. Can I buy you a gift certificate? Right? And that's, that's the approach that you want to have. You want to, you want to get off of the belief system and you want, to, you want to try to focus on what kind of life are you trying to live and how can, I, how can I support you in doing that? And you want to ask them to do the same for you. 
And so, you know, I, I, I teach my, my young humanist friends, hey, this is how you support a Christian. And they go, like, but I don't want to ask them what happened at church. I think it's all bullshit. And I go like, listen, that's the language that they're speaking. That's the framework in which they're pursuing these values. And so you need to ask them that. And if they tell you about a sermon that violates their values, you need to challenge them and go like, wow, that sermon seems really counter to this value of yours. Don't judge the sermon on the basis of your values or your mindset or your narrative. You want to help them. You want to challenge them to judge it on the basis of their values and their mindset. And then if they hear a sermon that sort of gives them an idea that they're able to embody in a way that makes them better, you want to go like, man, I'm gonna, who wrote that book? I'm going to get you another Brian McLaren book. That's a great book. You should be reading more of those. And you go like, you don't really encourage Christians in their Christianity. Of course I do. Because just as I told you, I don't choose, I, I didn't choose what I believe. Neither do most of my Christian friends. They could no more not believe in God than I can believe in God. I mean, you know this, right? I mean, I, I could put it, you know, my, you know, my grandmother, I could have put a gun to her head and said, Grandma, I'm going to kill all your children and all your grandchildren and 10,000 orphans to boot if you don't accept Islam as the one true faith. And if you'd have hooked her up to a, a lie detector test, she would have failed. Because no matter how motivated she was to believe that Muhammad split the moon in two and flew to flew in a golden horse to Mecca, like she doesn't think that's true. It, that, that idea is not compelling to her. It doesn't make any sense to her. She believes what she believes. She believed what she believed. And, and so that kind of worldview humility that says, look, if I was that person and had their background, I'd probably believe what they believe. That, that goes both ways. And so that's the other thing that you want to do around your humanist or your secular kids. And that is you shouldn't waste a minute of your time trying to pushing them or cajoling them into believing what you believe, but you should be very hard on them if they fail to live up to their own values. And you should go like, hey, 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 you said this. What about that? There's a huge difference when somebody criticizes or challenges me because they want to show that my worldview doesn't make any sense and isn't coherent. And somebody who challenges me because they're like, look, you said that you hold these values and I want to see you be the best possible version of yourself. And that's your game. That's your game as a parent is you want to, you want to try to figure out what's the best possible version of this kid and push her that in that direction. I mean, it'd be a good answer, but like I actually answered your question to the best of my ability. So I feel good about myself. Yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah. Okay, no, no, oh, we have time for a few more. Yeah, go. This guy, he was next. Well, first, just thank you for being here. Um, I, I believe that, um, I, that we all are image bearers and part of the, the way I protect myself from not making um, God in my image is understanding more of the image that I see in everyone else. So thank you for sharing your stories with us. My question to you is, um, can you ex tell us some about the community you have developed in, in Cincinnati, what that looks like? Um, what, what does a secular community oh, look yeah, like? Oh yeah, and you can get your dollar afterwards. Thank you so much for that question. That's, 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 now you just lost it. Um, so when I was at USC in LA, 
I worked on a college campus and there's no place easier to build a community than on a college campus. Everyone lives within a mile of each other and they eat meals together three times a day. Um, if you can't build a community there, you know, you, you're in trouble. Um, but when I moved back to Cincinnati, um, the school, the school that I, I, I first started to try to work at was the University of Cincinnati. It's a commuter school. And it's a cold weather climate and people are in. It, it doesn't have a strong community anywhere. People are coming and going. And so I was really struggling to get a student group going. I would meet students that were interested, but you could never get them on the same schedule. They were traveling all over. But by that time, this podcast was actually a thing. And there were a lot of people in Cincinnati that listened to it. And when they found out I moved back to Cincinnati, they started reaching out to me and saying, hey, could you start a community like that, not for college kids, but for families? We'd love to be part of something like that. Could you do something like that there? So we did. We, 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 we thought we'll do the same thing. And so it started out with, I just started having covered suppers, you know, just invite potluck dinners and people would come and, and all these people that I knew, I'd say, hey, you should come, you should come. And people would meet each other. And it was really fun for a while. But then something really terrible happened. And that is, whenever you hold up a flag that says, we're going to be a loving community, um, you're going to attract a lot of really needy people, okay? And you put a lot of needy people in a room together, eating dinner together, and you go like, well, that's great. They're lonely and they're lonely, so if you sit them next to each other, they'll be friends. But like, no, they're lonely for a reason. And they're lonely for a reason. These are socially awkward people, and they struggle. And so what you have to have is you have to have some healthy people to create an environment. But at a dinner party, you ever been to a dinner party? Like you sit down, the person who's seated immediately to your left and your right across the table, that's who you're going to talk to. There could be 50 other people there, but like you're only going to talk to those three people, right? So what would happen would be if you sat down next to the wrong person, you had a really rough night. And so all the healthy people that already had friends, they stopped coming. And then the other people, they couldn't help each other. And so the thing sort of ground down. And eventually... Some of the healthier people, the people that many of them had been church leaders in the past and they had been excited about putting together something like this. They said, listen, we can't do this. There has to be content. Like the reason we liked church was you could go be with 50 people and you didn't have to talk to all of them because there was something happening in the front. And so you felt the like-mindedness. You felt the care and afterwards, you had juice and cookies, and you could talk, but you didn't have to talk to everybody, and you didn't have to be best friends with everybody. You just, you didn't have to carry a conversation for 90 minutes. So we shut down the dinners, and we started this thing called Caravan. And Caravan, as best I could tell you, it's a church for people who don't believe in God. Like, literally, four or five leaders and, and me, we get together, and uh, we plan an hour, a tight hour. Starts out with a welcome. There's a song, there's some music we'll play, and you gotta find, we'll, we'll find inspirational music and we'll play songs together, sometimes we'll sing songs together. Somebody will do a reading. It could be a poem, it could be a passage from a book. Somebody will get up and share. I give a 15 minute talk sometimes that we all write together. And the talk is built on trying to take some, trying to address some aspect of our shared and collective purpose as a group, which is to build more loving relationships, 
to do work in the world that makes things better for other people, to cultivate gratitude and wonder for the privilege of being alive for even this brief moment in time. And then the fourth value that we have in our group that we always are pushing is this thing called worldview humility which you've heard me talking about a little bit here today. And that is one of, our, one of our stressed values is we will not make fun of Christians. We will not make fun of anybody because people believe what they believe for a reason. And if we were in their shoes, we would believe exactly what we believe. Like, honestly, like sometimes people feel superior because they like, well, can you, <laughs> they believe that nonsense and we know the truth over here. And the truth of the matter is, is you don't know you, even if you are right, like, and don't get me wrong, I have a lot of worldview humility. I think I'm right. I just know that even if I am right, it's not because these ideas are right. That's not why I adopted them. I adopted them because I could. I adopted them because of where I got educated. I got adopted them because of who I was around and the experiences I had. Like, I was able to adopt those, those ideas. And not everybody is. So, so worldview humility just says, like, look, even in humanism, you know, some people look at us and, because, you know, like, like our, our, when we were starting this thing, one of the thing, leaders said, I've been a part of too many groups that didn't cohere, that never last. And she said, I just have one rule. If we're going to start a group here again, it has to be built around love. We have to say the word love, like none of this reason, none of this truth, none of this like, you know, science. Like she's like, those are all important things to, to do. But like, if we're not about love, I'm out right now. And we all just looked at you and said, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm only interested in being in a community that's purpose is to promote loving kindness and is to make me a more loving person. So, so the world of humility thing, like the, those values all come in under that thing. So we do sermons based on like, how do you become more loving? And we sing songs about how do we become more loving and forgiveness. And we talk about friendship and, and sometimes somebody will come into a science lecture and sort of go like, hey, there's this thing about how you're, brain moves your hands and the more you understand it the more it's just like i mean you all move your hands right do you know why or how it's unbelievably complex it, it's just this thing and like just just the, the evolutionary process that just gives you the ability to move your hand let alone the eyes that are able to see you moving your hand are so astounding that if you reflected on them for any period of time you would end up just going like oh my goodness life is so much more fabulous than i even understood and you go like, well, what would be the point of giving a talk where at the end of it, you just feel like your life is more valuable than it was at the beginning? And you go like, are you kidding me? What, what did you guys used to call it? Worship? Yeah, right. right? Adoration, celebration. You call it whatever you want to call it. I just call it wonder. Like I just want to, and, and you go like, yeah, but what does wonder have to do with love? And the answer is every psychological study will tell you that when people have just had an experience of awe or wonder, if you, like like you could send two people up to look at the Grand Canyon, you could send a group of people, and on the way up you have you put a dummy in the crowd who falls down and spills all their pa all their papers and pencils, and a certain percentage of people will stop and help them. The next group of people you send up, have them walk up, look at the Grand Canyon, and then on the way down, have the person fall and drop the stuff. And guess what? More people will help them. More people help them. The act of awe and wonder makes people feel more connected to each other. Makes more, them feel more connected, like I'm part of oneness. That's why I'm a big fan of psychedelic drugs. 
Because in, when people use psychedelic drugs, they often have experiences that make them feel connected to nature. And they, they have something they call the ego death, where they lose, they, they're unable to differentiate between themselves and the world around them. And when they come back out of that experience, that non-addictive, non-invasive experience, when they come back out of that experience, they feel more connected. And you're like, well, what does feeling more connected have to do with having more loving relationships? Only everything. So, I mean, if I told you about a substance that could make you a more loving person, would you take it? Well, you would if you were committed to my value system. If I told you that if, I, if we all held hands and sang and ate together, that we would feel more connected to each other, would you do it? If I had science, if I had data that would suggest to you that holding hands and singing songs together will draw us together, you, that's, 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 that's my caravan group. It's a group of people that are like, listen, you, 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 you explain to me how to be more loving because that's what we're, that's our shared commitment to each other. And uh, it's, it's just, it's delightful. I, I, I got to tell you, like I go on Sunday mornings, I help organize it. But at the end of each Sunday morning, I have an experience that I seldom had when I was running church services in which I come out and I go like, I don't just feel good because I created an experience for other people. I feel genuinely like that was uplifting to me because when I was doing the church stuff for most of the time, I was preaching stuff that I knew I could sell, but it was very hard for me to buy. Um, and the narrative that I peddle now, it's easier because I, I, fully, I, fully, I fully buy it. And that means it's able to touch, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to be reached by the same stuff that I'm creating and, and that I'm, I'm encouraging. And so it's very exciting. It's very exciting. It's also really fun to do humanist evangelism. It's way easier than Christian evangelism. <laughs> Because in Christian evangelism, you know, you, you go and you befriend somebody and you convince them that you and your friends are the nicest people they've ever met. And they say, I want what you've got. And, and then they go, what do I have to believe? And you go like, well, actually, you have to believe quite a few very difficult and complicated things. Trinity and you know, like humanism is just the same thing. You, you, you go and you connect with somebody who's hurting and lonely. You bring them into your community. They go, these are the nicest people I've ever met. They go, what do I have to believe to belong? And you go like, All right, you, you don't have to believe in anything. You just have to share these values. And they go, I'm in. It's so much easier. So much easier. Yeah. So, so th th that's our little community. And, and when we started out, we were doing it in my living room. And then we got a cool facility. And then COVID happened. And we lost everything. And lost our facility. And we couldn't get together in person. And we weren't established like a 10-year-old like a church with staff and all that stuff. And never will be. There's no money in this stuff. And so as a volunteer organization, the whole thing collapsed. And now we're just restarting again, um, trying to find a new place to meet because ultimately, especially for secular humanists who have been starved of any kind of physical fellowship, being together in a room together, that's the whole, that's the whole ball game. Nobody's interested in virtual. That virtual shit doesn't work for us. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe for anybody. Okay, listen, I've, I've, I've talked way too long. Um, this is probably the worst podcast any of my listeners will have ever heard. Because um, the podcast is usually good because the people I'm talking to are so great. Um, it's just me. If it's just me, well, you've probably had enough. Um, is there anybody else that's got anything compelling that they want to throw into the mix? We've got about five minutes. Yeah. Okay, go. You do. If you want to be compelling in the mix. Bart, you brought him up just a few minutes ago. But uh, so at this point in time, what do you do with Jesus? I mean, the historical Jesus. I mean, does Jesus play any part in in love at this stage of the game for you, or or is you know it's that funny non-entity? You know, I always had a really tortured relationship with Jesus, um, and and, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, 
because Jesus is such an iconic figure that you, like, which Jesus? You can make him whoever you want him to be. Yeah. You want to, like, like people, you know, we, we always had, had these bracelets, you know, WWG, what would Jesus do? And first of all, I was like, how would I know? I have like a handful of stories like that are jack like that are, you know, told from different perspectives about something. I can't tell you what my mother would do, and I know her really well. You know, it's like like so the the idea that like I have an insight as to who Jesus really was. Everyone, everyone's like, you know, how many Christian books are there? Like the re- who, this is who Jesus really was. You know, and like so the first thing is like I I never had any I never had any access direct access to Jesus. He's a historical figure. If there's anything I know about historical figures, it's that you can, you know, if you, anybody ever had a magazine profile written about them? Because what I can tell you is like, they can make you, they can take the same quotes and make you look like a sinner or a saint. They can make you look, they can do whatever they want with you. You know, like, and so like the idea that Jesus is this static figure that like, who, th- this is it. Like Jesus is always open to interpretation. And so when somebody says to me like, you know, whenever somebody says, what about Jesus? I always say, tell me about the Jesus you believe in. And they tell me. And when they tell me, I don't know anything about Jesus, but you know what I know a lot about? Yeah, I know a lot about who they are. Because we project onto Jesus whatever our most closely held values are. Okay? So, so the thing for me is, like, the, key, the reason Jesus was relevant to me was because he was God. Was because he had risen from the dead. You go like, no, 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 it's like, forget that stuff. It's just the great moral teachings. And I go like, with all due respect, Jesus' teachings are, they're, they're great. But all the greatest of Jesus' moral teachings, lots of other people said the same stuff. Like, the, the, you know, the, 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 I, I don't find the uniqueness that everybody's telling me. Now, the unique, if that's God, if he rose from the dead, if he died for my sins, I guess that, that, that puts it on a whole different level. But like, the teachings themselves are, 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 some of them are really compelling. Some of them are really scary. Um, but, but all of them are open to interpretation. And, and, and they all, like, like, we've got, however many people we've got here, we've got however many different visions of Jesus. And so, when there's a good Jesus quote, I'll use it. I'll quote him because... He's a lot like Elton John. Like everybody knows him and everybody knows the words. And so like, it's like a cultural currency, uh, Carl Jung, collective unconsciousness, right? Like, like he's part of the fabric of Western society. And so like, I'm pleased to use Christ imagery. Like I like the matrix. I like allegories. I like all that stuff. You know, so I like, I'm down with Jesus as a literary concept, but I'm, I'm not sure that without the supernatural side of Jesus, I'm not sure why he would be that much more important to me, except that my granddaughter has a beanie baby cat called Bobo, and she wants that cat with her at all times, right? That cat, I don't know if you know, remember when beanie babies were worth hundreds of dollars? You know what that cat is worth now? You know what beanie babies are worth now? Like nothing, right? You can get them in any garage sale. A cat is worthless. And especially after the nonsense she's put it through, he's really worthless. But I'll tell you what, I will drive across town if she leaves Beanie Baby somewhere to fetch Beanie Baby. Because the Beanie Baby has no intrinsic value to me. But because my granddaughter adores it, it is very important to me. I treat it with great respect. 
and, and I will often quote her cat if I think it will help her to go to bed. <laughs> that is how I feel about Jesus. Jesus is very important, very important to some of the people I love most in the world. And I will, so I revere Jesus on that level and I take him seriously on that level and I learn all of his stories on that level. And when my Christian relatives and friends are struggling, I, I, I quote Jesus voluminously at them and not in an ironic way, not in an ironic way. He's important to them. They're important to me. He's important to me. And that's maybe a great place for us to say, thank you so much for being part of this little podcast experiment. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.